0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you
1: are, however, you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. In this episode, we induct a diva from Harlem who is indisputably the quickest wit in opera into the OBS Hall of Fame. And then the Don't Say Gay Bill has reached all the way to the concert hall. (laughs) Welcome to the free state of Florida, folks. Plus, two-minute drill. When was the last time you slept in an opera box? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast stitcher and spotify you click follow apple podcasts hit the plus sign send us that voice memo or email us your hot takes Score at gmail.com get that obs beer coaster obs lapel pen and i think we're gonna have some new merch coming out oh. next month as well so you might want to be Spoiler first in line for that <laughs> oliver camacho there he is
2: Carlos Alcaraz is back. He was injured for the Australian Open, but he has returned to the tournament, and he picks up his first title in Argentina, taking out Cameron Norrie. I'm looking forward to the upcoming clay court season, y'all.
1: Clay court. Where it's where is that Matt Cummings?
3: I, of course, have no sports updates because for them to get to me, it has to be something like LeBron James sets new record, and everyone talks about it for several <laughs> days. <laughs>
1: We're in the middle of hockey season here, man. Those Pittsburgh Penguins, you should be keeping an eye on them. Ashley Hardgrave, did you watch the NBA All-Star Game?
4: You know, I got a couple of clips. Uh, a, a lovely little young white man won the, uh, the slam dunk challenge, and that was <laughs> impressive. So yeah, this last weekend was the All-Star break for the NBA, but none of this matters. Literally none of this matters. Everybody pull over and sit down. I have something to say. I am going to forever henceforth be able to classify my life into BT and AT, which is before Titanic and after Titanic. (laughs) I finally got to see Titanic last week in New York City. My life is forever changed. It is the most entertaining piece of theater I have seen in calendar years. It's as if they wrote it exclusively for me. George, are you familiar with Titanic? Have you heard the good news?
1: I have not heard the good news. I'm ready to be converted.
4: Oh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, sit down. This is so exciting. Okay, imagine if, in a live musical format, the story of the film Titanic was told exclusively through the music of Celine Dion. Now imagine that Celine Dion is your narrator through the 90-minute piece in a champagne gold column dress and her fair Fawcett wig from The Vegas Show. Now also imagine maybe Celine Dion was, in fact, on the Titanic and is telling you the story firsthand. It is perfect. It is the most hilarious thing I have seen in a long time. If you are anywhere near New York City, run, don't walk, see Titanic, and then DM me so that we can talk about it because it is so so wonderful. That Honestly, a
3: phenomenal. perfect vehicle to get Anna Gasteyer back on Broadway. Just saying.
4: <laughs> I, I'll tell you, though, she, her Celine is good. But this, uh, the woman Marlena, I'm forgetting her last name. But the and she's one of the writers of the show. The woman who plays Celine Dion is perfect. She is it's the most <laughs> wonderful. Like it's not mocking. They're not making fun of Celine right. Dion. It's like a celebration of how wonderful she is. And you can tell the woman playing her Loves her so much, but it is seriously, I can't, I mean, I would fly us all to New York right now on a road trip to like see Titanic if I could.
1: Jeez. Okay. I'm going to look it up after we talk some opera.
0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly,
3: distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. So to commemorate Black History Month, we absolutely must talk about one of the all-time greats who has not yet been inducted into the OBS Hall of Fame. We're just going to go a little ways up the road from... Titanic that we just saw, to to Harlem, the birthplace of the one, the only, Martina Arroyo. Uh, Martina Arroyo is known for her glorious spinto-soprano voice. She was a mainstay at the Metropolitan Opera and all over the world uh, from the late 50s into the late 80s, Um, and she is a force of nature, and we are here to celebrate that life and that career. She is still alive and kicking. Um, she was born in Harlem in 1937 to a Puerto Rican father and a Southern black mother and grew up in a stable, but certainly not wealthy family. Um, but her parents were able to take her to get exposure to the arts and culture in ways that they had never gotten to experience themselves. So like museums, Broadway shows, films, uh, all of this with education as a really fundamental value. And that is a refrain that's going to pop up again and again, um, in Madame Arroyo's life. She pursued singing, actually, like, mostly extracurricularly, studying privately with her teacher, Marinka Gurevich, who is Austrian and uh, was also a teacher of Grace Bumbry. Uh, and she was studying privately on the side while she was uh, pursuing a degree in Romance Languages at Hunter College. Uh And she graduated at 19 with that teaching degree. And this kind of, like, do it yourself, figure it out, find your own path is another refrain that's going to come up, like, again and again through this life story. And I think it's, like, a lot of what makes her so interesting as an artist and not just as a singer, but, like, as an exemplary human being. Are we
2: just learning that she is Latina as well? I guess Arroyo is a... Hispanic last name.
3: I knew that. I I knew that for a while. She actually talked in one interview how she doesn't really identify as being Latina. She considers mm. herself black because that's what people see when they look at her. Um, mm. But 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 she is Afro Latina, um, and, and she is a, like just about a decade younger than Leontine Price. So we're talking about. Um, a generation of singers who didn't really consider opera to be a fully serious possibility. The Met had never cast a black singer when she was like starting her studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, She, so instead she worked as a social worker for the welfare center while she continued her training. Um, During that time, Famously, Marian Anderson is cast in Umbalo and Mascara and is the first black singer to sing a lead at the Met. Uh, and so, a couple of years later, when Martina Arroyo auditions for the Met, she is first rejected, but in 1958, she wins the Auditions of the Air, uh, which was what the like National Council auditions were before they the National Council auditions, and she uses the prize money in order to study at this Catherine Long school at the Met, to study acting, to study ballet, to study languages, to study fencing, and just the way that she created her own curriculum of, like, everything that she might need to know as a singer on stage, like, this trend of resourcefulness and overcoming and, like, finding her own opportunities and and overcoming obstacles is, it's just, it's really notable. Um, she makes her first professional appearance in Pizzetti's Murder in the Cathedral in a concert version and gets called out for having a ton of uh, potential. Mm. And then she uh, she makes her professional opera debut uh, in Don Carlo in 1959. Uh, she her voice does at least she is not on the stage because she's just playing the celestial voice. Um, and that was at the Metropolitan Opera, and that was that would have been four years after that color barrier there had been broken. From there she mostly goes to Europe and builds up her resume, gets her big break in 1963 uh, as Aida in Zurich. And what a,
2: what a way to start. You go from slush I mean, up geez. voice. I mean, you're singing 30 seconds to singing two hours. And, it, and she
3: worked a lot in those four years. Like she she sang tons of Compromaria rep. She's going back and forth doing little featured roles in Europe and in New York, but just like not really fully breaking through to be a star. And then in 1965, Birgit Nilsson is supposed to sing back-to-back performances as Zalame and Aida. Oh. And after doing Zalame, she, she uh the night before, she cancels. And, and so Jesus. she can't possibly do Aida. Mm. And the story of what happened next is like hilarious because apparently Martina Arroyo had a lot of friends who liked to call her pretending to be Rudolph Bing, the general manager (laughs) of the Met. So when she gets this phone call saying that Nelson isn't going to go on and she has to go on as Aida, she thought it was a prank. And so she answered by saying that she normally takes her mother to the afternoon uh, movies on Saturday, (laughs) but that they would probably be done in time for call time. Uh, and then she finds out that uh, it is not a joke. And in fact, she is going on for Aida right then and there. <laughs> um, another refrain that's going to pop up throughout the story of Martina Arroyo's life is uh, that she is so funny. She's like, she is just kind and she's witty. And so what she says about this performance is that you, nobody replaces Birgit Nilsson. You just sing for her for that night.
1: Um, <laughs> fair. Deeply but fair. That,
3: that's really selling her short because the ovation is out of control. She gets rave reviews, and that is when her star really takes off. Uh, so you're
2: saying that she stepped in for Bigot Nilsson at the Met?
3: At the Met. Holy moly! Yeah. I mean, what
2: were they thinking? I mean, that feels like a, a Peter Gelb move to like say, oh, one night you'll sing Salome, the next you'll sing Aida. But like, <laughs> if anyone of...
3: could do it, wouldn't you think yeah. that it's Nilsson? No, no, for sure, for <laughs> sure. So. And and so by this point, like Aida is of course a signature role for her. She's a black spinto soprano in the '60s with great high notes, and she sings it so well. Um, so let's hear. I've talked enough about Martina. Let's hear. Uh, I mean, I haven't. We will keep doing this mm-hmm. for a while. But before I talk more about her, uh, let's hear a clip of what that Aida might have sounded like. This is an excerpt from uh, the Act Three aria "O Patria Mia." <laughs>
2: thing that really distinguishes to me the voice her voice is just how in tune it is mm-hmm. and how there's like that upper partial that that rings that i don't want to say it sounds sharp but it just is riding on the high side of the pitch which is like thrilling uh but it's also like very very head-centric the town you know you don't you don't get chest voice in that
3: Yeah, I think of her voice as, like, gleaming. Like, there's kind of a smoothness and a roundness on the back end, but, like, that bright shine, especially in the upper, the upper high to the very top, like, it just takes over and it is this absolutely, like, refulgent sound that kind of overwhelms you at times. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but her recording history doesn't talk doesn't come anywhere close to the uh, span of roles that she's then asked to do from like the mid '60s into the '70s. She does the Balo Amelia, she does the Booka Negra <laughs> Amelia, Madame Butterfly, Donna Anna, Donna Elvira, Lady Macbeth, the Trovatore Leonora, the Forza Leonora, Liu Torandot, Madalena from Andrea Chenier, Santuzza, Joconda. She's the first black person ever to sing the role of Elsa wow. in Lohengrin. She, like, doesn't just stick to this uh, Italian and French repertoire. She sings Ariadne. She sings Tosca. Uh, she sings a lot of concert work. She was a favorite of Leonard Bernstein. She recorded the Misa Solemnis with him. Uh, she records Schoenberg's Leader. She uh, is part of the premiere of Stockhausen's Cantata Momenta. Sorry, Weston, not a clip One because you're not on this show. But I will talk about it. Uh, she Premieres, uh, the uh, Barber's Andromache's farewell in the '60s. Oh. There is a re- there is a recording of her singing it in the '80s, like <clears throat> 25 years later. It still sounds incredible. <sighs> but
2: just p- pause right there. Like, um, I mean, the roles that you named uh, up to Ariadne, you know, are roles that her voice type would sing. I mean, maybe turned out more than li- Liu. But um, when we get to like Girl Leader and Stockhausen and even the Barber. Uh, This is saying something else. This is saying that she's she has excellent musicianship because, you know, you normally don't put people who are like straight opera singers into that type of, you know, those types of situations, you know.
3: And what I think is so interesting about that, too, is that she uh, she sings with a ton of line. And so I think that's part of why she why that Italian repertoire like sits so well in her voice not just from where it sings not just for where the tessitura is like the high notes are very friendly notes for her um but she sings with a lot of like propulsion and thrust like whether it's forward or kind of in reverse we'll talk about the. Uh, like I'm going to come back to that but to be able to switch that idiom from italian which is so line focused so melodic centric like even when you're talking about verdi and puccini to do that kind of like pull notes out of nowhere music and to do it well like it's extremely impressive and pretty rare to have people who can do both well. And like she got rave reviews for this new music that she's premiering. She did have a little bit of a reputation at the beginning of her career as being a kind of a cool singer, someone who was focused more on the sound than the drama uh or or movement around. But I'm not really sure that I buy that as like an overarching description of her as a singer and certainly not of her career arc. Um, for one thing, I think that this tends to be a criticism that people who, um, lack imagination throw out at people who don't fit their preconceived expectations. Um, and it gets, when it gets brought up, it's early in her career when she, when she's younger. And so even though she acknowledged that she isn't necessarily a natural actor and it took work, like, it is very clear from listening to her talk about her artistry to, to like reading through her resume about what she did, that she puts in that work. Uh, like she seeks out acting coaches and practices, like just her blocking and just her intentions in it, like be outside of the music on her own time in her own apartment, like really trying to get to the heart of this.
2: There's a self awareness yeah. there, and I have. To, I'm, I'm sorry, actually, I'll say this really quickly. Just two weeks ago, she was interviewed uh, when they were broadcasting her Lady Macbeth, uh, the archival Lady Macbeth, and uh, Deborah Lou Harder interviewed her, and she says, "You know, I'm not." I'm not the best actress. She says, like, you know, like, I had to work at that stuff. You know, I sang it my way. I did it my way. But if you want to find somebody who's really going to, like, sink their teeth into that acting part of it, it's not me, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would just appreciate that she knows what she brought to the table, you know?
4: But it's still very much in that spirit and vein of what Matt mentioned of, like, figuring it out, getting the job done. It's, like, understanding and being self-aware enough to understand my musicianship is at this level – in order to be the effective storyteller I need to be, I need to work on these acting chops. And she just, she would, I mean... I'm not sure anybody told her she needed to go do that and seek out coaches. She just went and did that herself. And I can imagine that level d- of the game.
2: Divas that I could think of right now who get hired to do this type of music, uh, taking the time to like work on it. <laughs> <I see.
4: laughs> Whatever do you mean, Oliver? Whatever do yeah. you mean?
3: She talks a lot in one interview about how everything that seems natural, everything that seems organic is just work. It's just practice. It's practice to the point that oh, it feels organic.
4: That is um, a gut punch, but
3: yes. And you can really hear that I think especially in her singing when you're talking about things like her rubato her use of rubato is so bold and just so incredibly incisive uh, the way that she switches between like pushing a line forward and like driving the thrust of it versus like kind of pulling back and luxuriating in the sound like on a dime is, yeah. is really impressive and the effect is kind of overpowering. And when you when I say that out loud, it sounds like I might be describing like an egotistical singer or someone who just like likes to hear the sound of their own voice. But I don't think that that comes through at all when you listen to her singing. Um, it, it, it's just an elegant sense of the rubato and the phrasing, and like understanding whether the phrase is moving forward or it needs to stay for a minute to like fully sink in. And the next clip that I've chosen, I think, really, really demonstrates that like push and pull. Uh, and it's from the first aria from uh, Il Trovatore, Taccia la notte placida. <laughs> What's So that was the second verse of uh, Leonora's Cavatina from Il Trovatore. Uh, uh,
0: uh.
3: And you could, like, that orchestra poses no problem for her. Like, you can tell that in the hall, that was a titanic sound.
2: So, you know, we often talk about, like, bel canto on this show and, like, what it means. And then there are these operas by Verdi, which are, you know, basically breaking the bel canto mold. And it's that. It's exactly that moment where it's like, you have to sing italianate vowels you have to sing with legato you have to have a smooth phrase but you have to be able to add volume you have to be able to like thrust you have to be able to like step on the gas and increase your sound so that you can be heard over that orchestra it's no longer bel canto because bel canto composers never asked their singers to do that you know that's what makes it Verdi.
3: yeah and some reimaginings from the 20th century like Callas on Sutherland, like, that makes its way into the orchestration, but that's, like, almost looking backward from Verdi and, like, putting that on to Donizetti, even though it, like, didn't hmm. fully develop. Yeah. Um, Wild. And what, I, what stands out to me in every single recording of her that I've ever heard, and I've played a couple recordings of her on the show in the past. I played excerpts from her La Juive on the La Juive episode. I played excerpts from her Forza on the one where we talked about Forza. Those, aren't not, those are not going to reappear tonight, but they're both great. Um, and just the way that that voice blossoms when she gets to the top. Uh, and, and just like... Uh, and even though it does she doesn't necessarily have like the most present chest voice compared to some of her peers, it would be a lie to say that she doesn't have presence in her lower voice like there's all this almost kind of cavernous mysterious sound when she's younger, and as she gets older, it does um it do- it it does get stronger like as she continues to sing and like do more of that big girl rep um and if <laughs> the bottom sometimes gets a little bit cloudy, it is more than made up for by that clarity on the top and like we said like she just had a lot of voice but even with that much voice the agility and clarity to sing something like um valentine in le huguenot or the the lady, either lady in don giovanni like that that line is there and she can totally she has such control and facility over her voice to sing the sing the idiom the way it was written and like Sing with her full voice, yes, but sing in a way that like makes sense for many different styles, um, and I think that that really comes through actually in this clip from that th- that I'm gonna cue up next from uh, Les Huguenots, which is probably her glitziest recording project. She's on the, <laughs> the big decka one, the big Deca set with. Richard Bonning conducting and Joan Sutherland and a tenor no one's ever heard of who does okay. And Gabrielle <laughs> Um, And uh, this is a clip from the act three duet between um, Valentine and the, and Marcel. So uh, who was played by Gabrielle Baquiez. Um And she really makes this French grand opera that could so easily be silly or um, frivolous sound like music. And it, and it doesn't just sound like notes, it sounds like emotion, it sounds like a person. To be clear, I love French Grand Opera, and I don't think that it's frivolous or silly. <laughs> I love that m-
1: show, too. It's not done a lot, but it's such a Cause quirky Because it's long as it's, it's really yeah. hard. Yeah, it's so
3: It's long. long. But, like, There's, it is really good.
2: You're not going to see that opera
3: done with uh, a piano reduction.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, their hands would fall off.
3: So in 1968, she does this big concert at Covent Garden in Les Huguenots, which I think is around the time that her career like really fully takes off to the, even a further level from where she got to from that big Aida premiere. She's singing all over the world. She's fully established as a prima donna, uh, but she is really part of that first generation of singers to break through the operatic color barrier. Um, her series of debuts in the early 60s as Aida opened doors for her, but that wasn't without difficulty. And she actually talks a lot about how she had a different experience about that with, with that than some of her peers. Um, and, and puts her finger on the difference being that she grew up in Harlem in an in interracial family already. And so it wasn't quite the same as, Uh, People who were really used to being treated as an outsider, as uh, like Leontine Price, who was born in Mississippi, or Shirley Verrett, who who was also from the South, or Grace Bunbury, who's from Missouri. Like, that's just a very different culture to grow up in. And the way she talks about this is really interesting. Uh, And she says that, she says, I thought the color problem was the other man's problem. I didn't know how to carry that burden. Uh, I had never been an outsider. And it gives you a type of fearlessness because you don't know if you're going to run into the problem. And I didn't run into it, or if I did, I didn't know about it. and you know this is her talking when she's being interviewed in advance of being inducted into the Kennedy Center honorees. so she's looking back and being I think very charitable based on some earlier anecdotes that pop up in uh, that, that that pop up in interviews about being asked if she's black or being called a cannibal at a restaurant in Germany or um like other kind of nasty things that we don't Mm -hmm. need to give like a ton more airtime to and like all of us have imaginations and exist in a world uh, where race is uh uh, constantly a concern Mm. and it's kind of amazing to read through these news stories to notice like what how much has not changed even though it has sort of migrated to be a little bit more underground uh in this industry uh but the way that she often disarmed these racist comments that were thrown at her with these one liners. She said, Well it's great to be black and beautiful. It's even better to be black, beautiful, and prepared. Um <laughs> and that's per- awesome. <laughs> she like, she's very honest about the fact that People in the 70s like confused her for Leontine Price all the time. There's a famous story of her telling the Met Doorman, oh no, I'm the other one. And there's another version of that story where someone says, Oh, where she says, Oh, I'm not Leontine Price, I'm Riri Regrist, <laughs> who is like a, a teeny tiny petite little Coloratura soprano. Like it look couldn't look anything less like Martina Arroyo other than the color of their skin. But that really goes to her personality and wit, which is just such a key element of her persona in addition to her singing. People love Martina Arroyo. She's so down to earth. She never like puts on airs. She is so with it. Like throughout her entire career, she is the fastest person on the buzzer, the fastest finger on the buzzer, um, and just like always has a line prepared. And you like you read back some of these and you're like, oh, she called herself Madam Butterball when she was talking about Madam Butterfly. Like, (laughs) good one. But when you actually like sit down and listen to an interview with her, it's not just like a one liner here and there. It's like joke, 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 joke. And they're so disarming and they are so funny. Like, I I just can't get over it. Brian Kellow, who was the editor of Opera News, ha- had a, t- talked a little bit about her, like also in, ad- in advance of her Kennedy Center induction, saying that he doesn't think that Martina's good humor is a mask for anything. The source is generally a happy and rewarding life. There's no meanness or pettiness about her. She has created a life that is only meant to be admired. Uh, and that, I think, is just a sentiment that you don't always see in the performing arts. And I really think that it's nice to treasure it, when, it like, when you get such a sterling example of it, as as we do in Martina Arroyo. Going back to her career, we're now in the mid-70s. And she is, as Oliver mentioned, starring in a high-profile revival of Macbeth. Uh, and there's a good amount of press coverage about her career and her talents. And, it, like, to prepare for this per- production she goes all over the world and sees performances of not just the opera macbeth but also the play macbeth and has Mm -hmm. like a ton of ideas about how the words should be declaimed and whether whether or not lady macbeth would actually walk like that and just like the depth of character that she's really working to get into her body and into her psyche like it just shows how much of an artist she is that she's constantly trying to Bone up on what she can uh, on what could be considered her weaknesses. Like it's ju- it's such a clear example of that, and I really think that you can hear it in her singing. Like, is it going to be the snarliest, ugliest Lady Macbeth that has ever been sung? Like, of course not. That is not the kind of singer Martina Arroyo is. But it also doesn't need to be, and you can hear the. That even though that vocalism is lustrous, she knows who Lady Macbeth is, and she's bringing forth a character to be on stage and like to stand up against these that this big bad boy, and there is a fierceness in her delivery of the text in this aria that I don't think that you hear in uh, some of her other work. So let's hear a clip of that from that performance of Macbeth. late 70s, uh, she kind of disappears from the Met. And there are articles at the, written at the time that, like, ask where she was. Uh, and she claims that it was more of an oversight in the transition to the Levine regime. Yikes. Um, and that scheduling in advance, when they started scheduling things five years in advance, just made it too hard to pin her down, since she was really booked all over the world. Um, the Met, of course, has no comment on that, um, on that very <sighs> candid analysis from The Soprano about why she's not getting work from them. Uh, but she does end up appearing at the by the end of her career, 199 times with the company that was kind of a home base for her as like a native New Yorker uh, and the place where she got her her biggest leap to stardom. She begins to expand her career beyond just this, uh, the stage. She's appointed by Gerald Ford to the National Endowment of the Arts Council, serves on the boards of Carnegie Hall and the Met Opera Guild, continues doing concert work. Uh, She retires from opera in 1989, but returns in 1991 for the premiere of Leslie Adams's opera Blake, about a slave family, to a role that was written with her specifically in mind. Like, how can you? Uh, And of course, she couldn't say no to that. Like that to just honor the kind of living work in a composer. Like it is very in. It's very much a continuation of the the artist and of the person that we've seen throughout her life. Uh, in 2003, she starts a foundation that turns into the Prelude to Performance program, and it's really focused not on—it's um, not a company and it's not voice teaching, but it's about comprehensive performance. She gets the idea from a role preparation class that she's teaching at Indiana University, and just like fully builds it out to the point where they're presenting up to two operas a year, uh, and that m- and many up-and-coming singers like. Whose names we are starting to know, like Patrick Getty, from the the recently was in that program. Uh, Other names are escaping me at this moment because we're talking about Martina Arroyo. Uh, (laughs) But but it is the program's still up and running. Like she's still there. She's still teaching. Education is a is a refrain for her that we keep coming back to. Uh, In and in 2013, when she is inducted as a Kennedy Center honoree. Her introduction is given by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, sure. who says, "Long before a diva took on a different meaning, it was used sparingly to describe only those opera singers who took us to another world. That's the kind of diva I'm talking about. That's Martina Arroyo, and it's just such a such an apt description of her. It would be it would not be true to say that she didn't leave behind any recordings from this great career. Like there are." a couple recordings like i talked about the juive i talked about the huguenots um there are two don giovannis one with bim where she's singing elvira and one with colin davis where she's singing donna anna uh which kind of gives me ideas that it would be great to have like a a grace bumbry where she's singing the aida duet situation with herself with like martina arroyo singing both ladies (laughs) in mozart oh my god we can make it happen holograms there are <laughs> there are studio recordings of Vespri Siciliani, Forza del destino, and Balo. But beyond that, like it's it's a lot of pirates, and and there are a couple broadcasts of her on the, that are on the Met website. There are there's there's a pirate of Aida, there's a pirate of Trovatore, there's a pirate of Don Carlo, and the Beer L'Affricain. But when you are looking at a at a singer like of this caliber and of this level of talent and ability and just like a voice of this quality the fact that there are not more recordings for people to get to know her singing like is a tragedy and and not only are there not very many recordings but like many of them have not made the jump to digital yet or even to compact discs yet like she has one recital album and i think it's only ever been printed on vinyl i don't think it's made the jump to be like to ever have been um pressed onto cd And the fact that recordings of her are just so hard to find, like that, that's why I really wanted to shine a spotlight on Martina Arroyo as a part of this, uh, as a part of our Hall of Fame, because I know that people know her name, people know who she is, people, people are aware of her as a singer and people may have heard clips of her here or there, but you have not heard as much of her singing as you should, unless, um, you're a member of this panel. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Just before we close it up, I want to name a couple of prelude to performance alumni: Uh, tenor Noah Stewart, uh, bass baritone Ryan Speedo Green, Hmm. soprano Michelle Bradley, soprano Leah Hawkins. So, uh, and I I know two people who did the program and consider Martina Roya to be a friend, even though they did the program like ten years ago. You know, she's still close with all of her with all of her students.
3: Yeah. And and I really think that that just speaks to how she's not just an incredible singer, but an incredible person. That humanity is present in every interview. It's present in any appearance that she makes and it is present in her singing as well. She's not just a natural talent. She's smart and she's resourceful and she worked to strengthen her perceived shortcomings and continues to this day to teach other singers how to do the same and to pass on that tradition of learning and of love of music. And... On top of that, her singing is never less than sensitive and gorgeous, and she has such a wide variety of colors and a real intelligence about how she deploys them. And I really think that that all comes through in uh, this clip that I picked for our outro, but before I jump to that, I want to open it up to the panel to see if anyone else has any other closing thoughts.
4: I got the chance to connect with her very briefly once right when prelude to performance was like just becoming a thing um not to uh date myself but I was in graduate school at the time that this was starting to sort of get off the ground uh and so she she made a brief pit stop at my at my school at the time and she the the wit that you speak of I I don't think it'll surprise anybody that I respond very much to that behavior and that (laughs) brightness. And she, she absolutely, I I didn't know, sadly, I didn't know enough about who she was at the time, Um, but I do remember her being this really bright light in the middle of the room and she was whip smart and so funny. She made me giggle. And at that point I was like, who is this woman? Uh, And so that personality really does, yeah, it shines through.
2: I just want to say, if you can get your hands on the video of the 1983 Met Centennial Gala, and she sings um, the Aida Amneris duet with Minyon Dunn. Uh oh here, my God. Here are two singers who are just, it's like, park and bark? Yes. They stand, and they deliver, and everything is in the face, and everything is in the voice. and It is so dramatic, and they're just there in their gala gowns in front of a gold curtain, And it's the best version of that duet.
3: So to take you home in all of Martina Arroyo's resplendent glory, uh, from the celestial voice all the way to the Grand Dame of France, Queen Elizabeth, uh, here is Martina Arroyo singing Duque le Vanita from a live performance of Don Carlo.
0: (laughs)
2: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So, here is a little conversation we're going to have that is not related to opera, but is related to the world of singing. Um, on uh, Monday night, after we recorded last week, uh, I saw somebody share a Reddit thread uh, about um, a Christian college uh, called Pensacola Christian College in Florida. And uh, the thread starts off with the student who goes to this school. Uh, trying to describe what the King Singers are, the male acapella ensemble from uh, alumni of the Choir of uh, King's College Cambridge that started, what, 50-plus years ago. Uh, so this Reddit user tries to describe what King Singers are because he or she did not know who they were. But uh, goes on to say, uh, My college is openly anti-gay. It's very common knowledge, and a gay lifestyle goes against the core values of the college. They'll even talk about it in the chapels and and messages, but that is clearly their right and not where the problem lies here. Apparently, the people who booked the King Singers did not do their due diligence, and several of the students here found out that one of the Singers in the group is openly gay. The students started spreading the word around campus, and a group of parents got a hold of this information and started contacting the school by the dozens, extremely upset that their kids, who are forced to attend fine arts and listen to the King singers, will be listening to a group that has a gay member. The staff then made the decision to call the entire thing off to appease the parents, and because they didn't realize that they had invited someone who was openly gay to their Christian college. The true problem with this is that the singer wasn't coming here to wave pride flags or to openly speak about his lifestyle and sexuality. He, along with this entire group, was being paid to provide entertainment through song to a group of over 4,000 college students. The college also vetted and listened to every one of the songs they were to perform to make sure nothing offensive was sung, and the college decided to cancel the entire event just a few hours before the whole group before before the group was already uh, was ready to perform, and they were already on campus rehearsing. Uh, this just happened today, and there is already mention of it over social media from some of the college students, and that's where the thread ends. And yeah. I saw just when it was snapshotted on uh, that day, there were already two hundred and twenty-seven responses. And so uh, the ca- the concert was canceled and word of it got around. Uh, the King singers, even realizing that there was some, you know, talk that was boiling up on social media, decided to release a public statement.
3: And in the public statement, they start by saying, We were deeply saddened that our concert at Pensacola Christian College was canceled at two hours notice on Saturday, February 11th. The school gave its reasons for cancellation as concerns expressed about the lifestyle of members of the group. It has come, become clear to us from a flood of correspondence from students and members of the public that these concerns related to the sexuality of members of our group. We have performed at Pensacola Christian College before, and we entered in the, into the engagement in the knowledge that this is a fundamentalist Christian institution. Our belief is that music can pr- build a common language that allows people with different views and perspectives to come together. This is the first time that anything other than bad weather, the pandemic, or war has caused a concert cancellation in our 55-year history. Unbelievable. So, everybody, uh,
2: you know, bigotry is alive (laughs) and well. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted one of the King singers or all of them to be gay. And I never knew who was gay because uh, it's it's not clear because, you know, they're English, you know. Um, so yeah. anyway, we wanted to pass it over to Ashley who uh, will be, will be All our, there. uh, our voice of rage
4: <laughs> i am gonna do my best to control my rage uh which is sometimes the scariest kind um also i am a recovering baptist who grew up in the south uh not the cosmopolitan cultural hub that is pensacola florida but a baptist <laughs> in the south nonetheless um i also am someone who has had lots of experiences with helicopter parents uh so i have a i have a few remarks on this My umbrage with this comes with the statement that came from the college itself uh, when they spoke about, they said in in their statement, quote, one of the artists openly maintained a lifestyle that contradicts scripture. This is where I have issue. Uh, In terms of the actual scripture, uh, I read the same Leviticus that they did. And the heart of their claim that the Bible forbids, forbids, excuse me, this sort of lifestyle, that is... You didn't do your homework that is poor biblical scholarship that is inflicted with a little bit of cultural bias you know bias the Things like Sodom and Gomorrah and the Levite concubines and judges, those are criticizing sexual violence, not homosexuality. The types of things that are condemned in the Bible are very different than the committed same-sex partnerships that we see today. Do not come at me with that lie with a man thing that often gets beat over the head of people that are trying to have the Bible says no gay argument. The thing is, That scripture in particular is about incest and continuing family lineages and retaining the distinctiveness of Israel as a nation. All of those things are incredibly problematic. That is for another show. Um, PCC, you do not seem to have a problem with gays like Poulenc and Tchaikovsky who have absolutely been in your programming. So my guess here is that they just need to be dead. Like the dead gay is an okay gay. Is that where we're going with this? Because that's what you're setting up for me at the moment. Um, Here's the thing. PCC is a private institution. And with that comes the, you know, luxury of being able to choose the programming that's on their campus. That is absolutely fine. But like, be honest about it, come clean about it. Don't blame scripture for the choice, just say that you don't like it. Just say that you're not comfortable with gays. Or better yet, remember that all of us, per the book that you lean on so hard, are fearfully and wonderfully made, even you and even those gays. So let, re- rem- let me remind you of your book that you lean so heavily on, Romans eight thirty eight, which says nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even canceling a concert.
1: I mean, these guys have got to be some of the s- smartest people in the world, right? They went to Cambridge. I- I'm trying to think, like, so there they are, the show's canceled. It's like, well, here we are in Pensacola, lads. What do you <laughs> want to do? <laughs> do, they, do they, like, go to a basketball game or just go to a bar? Or, they
2: know? went to a gay bar for they sure. They went to a gay yeah. bar. <laughs>
1: it's right across the street from campus, right? And they were paid. I, if, if I'm reading all the, the right threads, is that they were still paid for the gig. Good. That that's
4: the understanding. I mean, they're they're under a performance contract, right. right? Whether or not, you know, the contract or sorry, the concert even goes right. on. It's still it's just so it's it's the hypocrisy of leaning on the word scripture right, that always right. really grinds my gears with these sorts of things. And it's like you you knew you knew ahead of time. So it's not necessarily that you magically remembered the two hours before the concert. Oh no, scripture says we shouldn't do this. It's that you bent to pressure from parents who use that excuse of scripture and then you were reactive instead of proactive.
1: Let us know what you think. Send us that voice memo or email us your hot takes on this story or anything that we're talking about on the show, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get your voice heard. Two Minute Drill, right now.
0: This just in, the Two Minute Drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in OperLand this week.
2: The dance world was shocked when a leading German choreographer smeared dog feces into the face of a critic in revenge for her negative reviews of his work. Hanover State Opera said Marco Gecke's actions had been hugely damaging to its reputation and came to an agreement with the choreographer that he should step down from his post as ballet director. In response, Gecke said the reaction had been, quote, a bit blown up.
3: The Philadelphia Orchestra and Kimmel Center have been hacked. The organization experienced a cyber incident that has temporarily impacted network systems, crippling ticket sales and box office functions at the city's largest arts presenter. The orchestra went on to say, We assure patrons that all performances will proceed as planned.
4: The English Concert is set to record over 600 works by Handel as part of a project entitled Handel for All. The project will feature an online library that includes recordings, live performances, resources to improve accessibility, and resources for academic institutions. This is a really exciting moment and we are thrilled to be embarking on this ambitious journey to film all of Handel's incredible music, artistic director Harry Beckett said. And George can't even name five
1: of them. Oh, Ashley, you don't mean that. Pretty young day, Sir Terfel, and Roderick Williams will be among the performers of the coronation of King Charles III at Westminster Abbey this May, which will include a newly commissioned coronation anthem by <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber.
2: The Finnish National Opera made history as the first opera house to use immersive technology throughout the entire production process. Two years ago, the company began working with Helsinki based virtual reality technology company Vario on a project to build what's called a digital twin of the performance hall, allowing stakeholders to see a highly detailed simulation, stimulation, simulation of the space and the performance, including set designs, performer placement and lighting. The company estimates that the digital twin, which enabled design elements to be perfected before labor and materials were committed, saved 75,000 euros and 1500 hours of labor.
3: An update on last week's report on the winner of the Houston Grand Opera Arias competition. After mezzo-soprano Natalie Lewis was named the first place winner, Sarah and Ernest Butler stole the show by announcing a $22 million gift for the company. HGO General Director and CEO Corey Dastor announced that the Butlers had just made the largest ever single gift to the company, and in recognition, the HGO Opera Studio for Young Singers was renamed after the pair.
4: Airbnb is honoring the Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest-running show, by inviting two guests to spend the night in Paris's historic Palais Garnier, the venue that inspired the beloved novel and musical. They'll transform the box of honor, spelled O-U-R, <laughs> into a bedroom, this prestigious box, once reserved for dignitaries, will be decorated in red and gold with design elements inspired
1: by the musical.
2: And plastic sheets, I'm sure. Cue
1: music. It's the Rapid Fire <laughs> Awards Roundup. George London Awards, congrats to Countertenor and Friend of the Show, Arya Nussbaum-Cohen. Congrats also go out to Soprano and Friend of the Show, Elena Vialon for her Encouragement Award.
2: American Academy of Teachers of Singing, or ATS, has recognized Joyce DiDonato's album *Eden* with a 2023 ATS award. The award is in recognition of artistic projects that model engagement and activism, and that highlight <laughs> the importance of community.
3: Congratulations to -er Counter-Daniel John Taylor as the first recipient of Canada's Inaugural National Medal of Music. The honour will be awarded annually to two outstanding leaders who have had a major influence on the cultural life and climate of the nation.
4: In trade news, the contemporary opera festival Munich Biennale has announced the appointment of two new artistic directors, Katrin Beck and Manuela Kerrer, starting in 2026. The biennial festival, created in 1988 by Hans-Werner Henze, concentrates on world premieres of contemporary music with a focus on commissioning first operas from
1: young composers. Paolo Petrocelli is set to become the head of the Dubai Opera House, He'll step down from his current position as Director General of the Stauffer Center for Strings in Cremona, Italy. Prior to that, he was the Advisor for International Development and Special Projects at the Royal Opera House Muscat in Oman.
3: Exit stage right, Austrian composer and conductor Friedrich Zerha has died at age 96. Zerha was known as a central figure in Austrian new music and made many appearances at the Salzburg Festival as both a performer and composer. Beyond his own works, he was also recognized for completing the orchestrations of Berg's Lulu for the opera's premiere following the composer's death.
2: And on this day, February 20th in 1648, it was the birth of English composer John Blow. In 1666, Francesco Cavalli's Pompeo Magno premiered in Venice. In 1724, Julius Caesar, an opera by Handel, just one of four operas he wrote, premiered in (laughs) London. In 1768, uh, Giovanni Paisiello's Alceste and a Buda, or Olympia, premiered in Naples. Francesco Bianchi had two premieres on this date, in 1781, Arbace, and in 1798, Chinna. In 1816, an opera called The Barber Seville by Rossini, I know, premiered in Rome. In 1907, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's The Legend of the Invisible City of Kotez premiered at the Marinsky Theater. In 1939, it was the birth of tenor Giorgio Merighi. In 1942, John Colomanotti's The Island God premiered at the Met. And happy birthday to Ricardo Chai, born this day, February 20th, in 1953.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
3: birthday boy, the late tenor Giorgio Merigi in the aria L'Animo Stanco" from Chile's Adriana Lecouvreur Couvreur. Uh, and that's from a live performance in Palermo from 1996. Uh, what's really interesting to me as I listen to him sing is that, uh, you can kind of tell that he definitely studied with the voice teacher Arturo Melocchi, uh, And you can tell that because there's a striking similarity in his vocal approach to uh, two other very famous pupils of Maloki, Franco Corelli and Mario Delmonico, with that really muscular, laryngeal uh, manipulation of the voice almost that creates clearly a lot of sound.
1: Crazy, the barber of Seville, over 200 years old. That's awesome. Man, what a show. Hey, so dog poop guy, just not kind of going away, huh? I
4: Mm, okay, um, I. Weston, be ready for the bleep because I made the joke that I have. Sh- to say, and then I laughed about it, and that stays in. Keep it. Um, okay, <laughs> these are my thoughts. Um, I, You guys, did you talk about this last week? I forget. We did, yeah. We did. Okay, okay. Okay. But this okay. was
3: before he had his second act. Yeah.
4: Oh, yes, yes, because he desperately needs to be heard and not be a victim of cancel culture. <laughs> okay, so he says his career <laughs> is in jeopardy, and he is totally right, especially because Hanover has said, of course, they're going to keep doing his work. He gets to keep his associate choreographer position at Netherlands, but again, like, his life is over. How are you going to bounce back? He also has apologized and said uh that he uh he apologized deeply but he's not free from his anger. Uh I don't really know what that means, except that he's super humble and super self-aware. I also love that he mentioned that if he was a woman, he would not be treated this way. And I think he's right, because I as a lady am definitely given carte blanche to smear carte brown on the faces of people that don't like me. So I really love, I really love where he's going with these things. He says he's open to criticism, especially that time that he repeatedly called that critic over and over again and emailed him. And then he said he was a coward for not responding. So again, he's like super self-aware Okay, listen, no, he doesn't I... use
3: email and is being cancelled. So I think you have some facts that you need to correct, <laughs> Ashley.
4: I get... Okay, here... Okay, to be fair, his mother is sick. His dog is sick. I am terribly sorry about that, and it really sucks. But I am not going to be separating the art from the artist in this uh, in this situation, the way that the critic Hooster had to separate the dog caca off of her face. Uh, Oof, so if ch- he uh... is being cancelled uh, with all of the 700 other jobs that he has, then we are—we uh, all should be so lucky.
1: Oliver, you're pretty tech savvy. What do you think of the old
2: <laughs> VR XR setup? I mean, it's exciting. I feel like this story is aimed at you, um, you know, being able to... Oh, yeah,
1: because t- I'm a, on the cutting edge of technology.
2: No, but I'm saying like for, it's for your <laughs> it's career field, out. like being able to... Uh, plan productions, you know... um,
3: Without having to spend that money.
2: Yeah, virtually. I just love that
1: they've saved like 1,500 hours of work. But
2: here's the thing. It's like, I mean, this is happening in every, you know, uh, job area. That was a great use of vocabulary. Um, How technology, especially, you know, predictive technology, like AI stuff, uh, is going to start taking people's jobs away, like writers, (laughs) And now maybe lighting designers, and maybe you know you got that contractor who's like on the lighting crew, or like the contractor right. who's like on. Right. You know, they go in there and they like bill you for one hour, even though they know oh you're gonna need this and this. They know it even before they even walk in the door, but you're billed for that hour uh, because that's the minimum amount of work or two hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is this type of uh, you know technology going to start uh, you know cutting into people's pockets, you know and uh, people that work uh in on these crews, you know. They saved so much money, but where was that money going to? Uh union people, I imagine. At least in the right. US it'd be union people.
1: Yes, know. well it should be. It should be going to Union people. I don't I don't believe any of that. The whole VR XR thing, not a fan, never will be a fan, won't touch it. Nor would I ever <laughs> sleep at the Paris Opera. Okay, so that's it Remember? that's what you're saying.
2: It's like you, you're not gonna use technology <laughs> to help work on a collaborator on a project let's say they ask you to you know uh direct a show in england and you can't get there until rehearsals start and you need to meet with the designer and you have like these digital models that you do your blocking on them you know
3: uh, and
1: that's well first of all that's not how i work but like it's a slippery
3: slope george you never know it's a very
1: slippery slope i i just don't People to people. That's all I'm gonna say. Is like I I have yet to see how like virtual reality can help me like explore the world of the design. I,
2: well, I guess you yeah. haven't ever worked with a big chorus or lots of uh, extras. Like when you stage an opera like Nabucco, you really just got to be able to direct traffic and figure out where people are gonna get on you and
1: off stage. but, but Fair, I don't see yeah. how this technology helps you achieve that any better.
3: You can see what they look like in all their places before you actually have people there who you're paying to be there to be there. So it's in like person. kind of
1: like a, So wait a second. Okay, wait a second. So it's basically like a video
3: game. More or less. Yeah.
1: Okay, I like video games. No, no. Oh, who's changing tune. his tune. <laughs> I played some. Okay, Mario you wanted you want
3: to talk
2: about uh, sleeping <laughs> at uh, at the opera. Well, let's wrap I, this up.
1: The last uh, I asked, you know, when was the last time you slept in an ox- opera box? It was like, oh couple weeks ago at the Lyric. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I never get into the
3: boxes at the Lyric. I mean, honestly, if you're really going to do the whole Phantom of the Opera thing, you should make them sleep in the basement. That's my hot Mm. take. (laughs) They have to sleep in the lake on a boat.
1: So they take (laughs) one (laughs) reservation. (laughs) Just to be clear, so March 1st, uh, noon Eastern time in the U.S., That's when you can make your reservation for this
3: Step aside, Ticketmaster. There's a new (laughs)
1: catastrophe
3: in town.
4: (laughs) And they're only taking one reservation at 37 euros. So you need to be online at 11.55 Eastern, ready to go with your clicker (laughs) finger if this is what you want. And I say, vaya con Dios. Best of luck to you. It won't work.
1: It won't work. This is why they need VR, right? Let's wrap this show up.
0: Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box
2: Score.
1: Time to wrap up this week's show. Good call, bad call. We're going to get straight down to it. Starting with Oliver Camacho.
2: So earlier today, I found out that I'm going to talk to the Timothy Chalamet of early music, <laughs> lutenist Thomas Dunford. I, you don't even know how excited I am about it. So just to prepare for my interview, I'm like listening to all his recordings, and I went back to his 2013 recital with uh, Yes and Davies at Wigmore Hall. Uh, the name of the recital is called flow my tears Uh, it's on the wigmore hall label and it is exquisite i am so jealous of yesin davies and anybody else whoever gets to sing with thomas dunford in recital he is like optimal uh, accompanist and so pretty so so pretty
3: Matt Cummings. I mean, my good call is how much Martina Arroyo I've been listening to in the past couple days. But (laughs) on top of that, uh, there's a very cool story in the Times that we'll put in our show notes about uh, Eugene Berman, a Russian-born composer who is trying to create an opera uh, that is a response to Russian propaganda about the war in Ukraine uh, and just peek a little bit behind that iron curtain. So be sure to check that out. It's a good read. Ashley Hardgrave.
4: Listen, I can't stress this enough. If you are anywhere near New York and love a musical theater spoof, you need to see Titanic. It is so wonderfully ridiculous. Constantine Rizzoli, Marla Mendel, who plays uh, Celine Dion, and Ty Blue are the composers. It is the funniest, silliest, most absurd thing you will see, at least for the next few years. Do it. Go to New York. It's at the Daryl Roth theaters. Uh, If I can sweet talk George into doing it, we'll put a YouTube link up on
1: our site. (laughs) Uh, I cannot believe that I have to read this story again, which is yet another town decides to attack the homeless with opera blaring oh. from the speakers of their convenience store. I I, I feel like the, this is the a Philly bad call. Folks, this is a bad call, by to the way. To be clear. I, I, just to be really clear. I feel like the Philly folks could be way more inventive. I mean, there's some really horrible people in Philadelphia. Surely, surely they can come you're, up with something. You're telling me. That, you know. Yeah. Or I don't know, maybe they could actually take care of other human beings. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. operaboxscore at gmail.com and find links to stuff that we've talked about at the website operaboxscore.com. It's also where you can put your money, where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page your announcer is norm waddell your creative consultant is oliver camacho and your audio editor is weston williams for co-hosts matt cummings and ashley hardgrave i'm george cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you debate the finer points of biblical scholarship we're back with an all-new show next week plus you get more upper headlines more hot takes and more high cheekbone tomos join us